I want to go to Proverbs and then jump over to Ecclesiastes today, two Proverbs and then one Ecclesiastes uh, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I talked to the kids about this yesterday at youth retreat and uh, they responded and the Bible says that the uh, children or the students or the young shall lead them and uh, they're going to help me today lead us into the presence of the Lord in just a moment. Proverbs 1 says this, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay? Proverbs 9, 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now let me show you that same chapter and verse, Proverbs 9, 10 in the Amplified Bible. I don't read out of the Amplified Bible every day because it's so wordy and descriptive. Um, it's just like twice as long. But I do like to go to the Amplified Bible when I have a verse and I want to know what it means because the definitions are built into the verse in the Amplified Bible. Here's the way Proverbs 9.10 reads in the Amplified Bible. The reverent fear of the Lord, which tells you something about this thing, the fear of the Lord has to do with reverence. The reverent fear of the Lord, that is worshiping Him and regarding Him as truly awesome. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Worshiping Him and regarding Him as truly awesome is the beginning and preeminent part of wisdom. So if you want an intimate knowledge of God and you want God's wisdom to navigate your life, it all begins with you learning to walk in what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And then in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom writer, he's given us this incredible 12 chapter collection of God's wisdom. And in the 12th chapter, he includes the entire book with this one statement. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, here is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments, for this is the entire duty of man. We're in the uh, middle of a series that we've called Swamped. And last week in the series, I referenced a survey conducted by the Harris Poll on behalf of the American Psychological Association. It's been done since 2007. And while the results up until 2020 have not been positive, they've remained relatively flat since 2007. But in 2020, stress, depression, anxiety, and emotional instability went through the roof. The latest results that released, released in 2021 caused the American Psychological Association to declare that America is in a mental health crisis. Many of us are living swamped and overwhelmed lives. But I can emphatically tell you living a rattled, anxious, stressed, depressed, fearful, worry-filled life is not God's will or design for you or anybody else. So I'm going to take the next few minutes and allow you to look at the life of Jesus and look at how he models his life because modeling your life after his is going to help you deal with the negative emotions and feelings that life tends to throw your way. We made one assertion during this whole series since we started it a few weeks ago. Jesus Christ is God in human form. And he became human to show us how to live life in an abundant, God-honoring, overcoming way. In other words, if I want to live life more centered... If I want more mental, emotional, and spiritual peace, if I want to minimize the swamped and overwhelmed days of my life, I'm going to have to be more intentional about patterning my life after the life of Jesus. So today I want to point you to a pattern, and really it's more of a priority than it is a pattern in the life of Jesus that made him 
the remarkable person that he was. We saw the phrase in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the, one of the key, if not the key ingredient that made him unique, empowered, life-giving, and remarkable as a human being. It's the thing the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Now, when you read that or you hear it, it sounds a little bit confusing, but this phrase doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. There are over a hundred times in the Bible, almost a hundred times in the Bible, there is some variation of the phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's actually commanded that we walk in the fear of the Lord. But the phrase never means to be scared of God. It actually means just the opposite. The fear of the Lord actually means to stand in awe of God, to reverence God, to honor Him. It, it implies an incredible deep respect. The fear of the Lord is awe-filled, reverent, awe-filled worship. And when I say worship, I'm not just talking about that section of the service where we sing songs that we call the worship service. I am talking about your whole life, living and honoring, reverent, awe-inspired posture before God. When you see the phrase, the fear of the Lord in Scripture, it means to venerate God. Now, I know none of us hardly ever use the word venerate or veneration, so here's the way the dictionary defines it. Veneration is the noun. To venerate is the verb. To treat or regard with great respect. To revere or hold in awe. Synonyms, reverence, respect, worship, adoration, exaltation, honor, and esteem. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not about being afraid of God. It's actually supposed to define the way that you love Him, the way you approach Him, the way you worship Him. You walk before Him in the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't want you to miss this. The expression, do not be afraid, is one of the most frequent and reoccurring commands in all the Bible. But the only way that you can live life unafraid of everything else is to walk in the fear of the Lord. The person that fears the Lord has nothing else to fear. Let me say that again. The person that fears the Lord has nothing else to fear. When you stand in awe of God's power, His majesty, His holiness, His rule, and His sovereign control of your life and the world, you'll find a peace and a rest that absolutely nothing else can bring. But if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you'll be stressed over, anxious about, afraid of, cower at just about everything else. Look, it's not coincidence. As our culture has become less reverent toward the things of God, we have become more stressed, more anxious, more depressed, and more worry-filled about everything else. We have lost our honor, our respect, our awe for the things of God and in its place, we have gained inner turmoil and chaos. One of the reasons America is in a mental health crisis is because we have lost the fear of God. Those who fear the Lord have nothing else to fear. Jesus modeled this so powerfully in his life. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that walking in the fear of the Lord was his delight. Like he delighted in walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. He gives several passages in his book about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus coming and he describes Jesus this way. Isaiah 11 verse 1. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse from his roots. A branch will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And you see it in the way Jesus teaches us to pray. We most often refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. And when we study it or pray it, we often rush past the first few lines of that prayer to get to, we try to hurry up and get to, give us this day our daily bread, or forgive us our debts, or deliver us from temptation, because we're so focused on us and our needs that we pay too much attention to our needs that we forget how the whole prayer starts. But the most important part of the whole prayer is in the beginning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The four most important words of the Lord's Prayer may very well be, hallowed be thy name, which means holy, revered, honored, and majestic is your name. If his name isn't holy, powerful, and majestic, the whole rest of the prayer is worthless. You can't ask a weak, powerless God to give you your daily bread or to forgive your sin or deliver you from temptation. For any of the rest of the Lord's prayer to even make any sense, you have to approach it in the fear of the Lord. You have to see him for who he is, holy, awe-inspiring king of majesty. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn Amazing Grace and another of his well-known hymns, penned this phrase, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. But we can't be so focused on our large petitions that we forget who it is we're bringing our petitions to. Thou art coming to a king, a king. We don't live in the days of kings and kingdoms, so we don't understand the protocols that were in place People rarely got an audience in front of the king. And if they did, there were strict guidelines that had to be followed before he would lower his scepter and allow you into his presence. And if you approached the king without going through the right protocols, you could be imprisoned or at worst, you could be killed. People literally came before the kings and emperors and pharaohs of days past, almost with their heads bowed until the king acknowledged who they were. And if people bowed in awe of earthly kings and rulers, how frivolous and careless would it be for us to approach the king of all kings with irreverent hearts? He is holy. His presence is sacred. Access to his throne room is privileged space. Compared to him, we are grains of sand or specks of dust, and yet he has invited us in out of his graciousness. Jesus understood this. Even as the Son of God, he approached the Father humbly. This is the fear of the Lord. Jesus wanted to show us what a God-honoring humanity looks like. If it's going to live abundant and overcoming and life-giving, it's going to have to be somebody that hallows the name, that bows in awe and humbly comes before this holy, majestic God. There is another occasion in the life of Jesus where he models the fear of the Lord. Matthew 21, verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out 
all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This is a moment of righteous rage in Jesus' life. He literally walks into the temple and starts flipping tables over, and then he runs everybody in the temple out into the streets, quoting from Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He was angry because they were merchandising the sacred, but more than that, they were using the system of worship that was in place, the sacrificial system for personal gain. People were innocently coming into worship. They were coming to worship God, but they were trying to buy doves and other elements that were used in worship, and the money changers who were exchanging currency were taking one currency under the table. They were robbing to the people in the exchange rates of their currency. So Jesus comes in, flips over the tables to expose the underhandedness, the lying and the thievery, but the ultimate cause of his righteous anger was their loss for reverence for what was supposed to be a sacred place. Yes, they lied, they stole, they were cheating. The big problem was their irreverent heart. They had turned the house of the Father into the den of thieves. They have lost the fear of God, the awe, the respect, the reverence. Charles Edward Jefferson pastored Broadway Tabernacle in New York over a hundred years ago. And in 1908, he wrote a little bitty book called The Character of Jesus. And in that book, he mentions this moment in Jesus' life. And I want you to listen to the words, the way he describes this moment with Jesus in the temple. In the process of moral degradation, that's when a culture is in moral decline, reverence is one of the first of the virtues to disappear. It is a flower of paradise which cannot blossom in the chill atmosphere of sordidness and vulgarity. The love of money had eaten out the hearts of many of Jesus' countrymen. They cared more for gain than they did for God. They converted the temple courts into a marketplace and drowned the anthems and prayers with the clink of money and the bellowing of steers. Jesus could not endure it. Others had endured it. He could not. Never did Jesus show such a tempest of emotion as in the cleansing of the temple. He became an avenging fury. And before the miscreants, which means lawbreakers, before the miscreants knew what was happening, their coins were rolling over the temple floor and their flocks and herds were in the streets. The explanation of the tempest lies in these three words, my father's house. It was not an ordinary house. It was the house of God. It was erected for God's worship. It was a sanctuary for the adoring heart. It was intended to be a soulless For men's woes and troubles. It was his reverence which kindled a fire in his eyes and gave his words an energy which pierced like daggers. As Isaiah said, Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord and it drove him to protect the sacred space of his father's house. Now I'm going to take a big gamble right here. This is going to be a risk because I want to make a point and I debated all week long whether I ought to do this because The risk is that some of you will misunderstand me. And if not careful, I'm really concerned about the older, more traditional ones among us. Because if you're not careful, what I'm about to say could very well empower your inner Pharisee. Okay, don't let that happen. I'm simply making a point of comparison among different generations. 
In previous generations, there were standards and etiquette put in place to protect the sacred that fostered a sense of awe for God, for his presence, and for his house. Here are a few examples. This room that we're in right now, and rooms like it in churches all over the place, in previous generations were usually called a sanctuary. They are called, some places, a worship center. But today, they are commonly referred to as an auditorium. It's not that big a deal. It's just a subtle shift in words. But sanctuary or worship center tends to convey something holy and sacred is going on there. Auditorium tends to convey something very ordinary and common is going on there. In previous generations, you never walked into the house of God with a hat on and you wouldn't dare bring food or drink into the sanctuary. Now, some of you that are feeling empowered in your traditions, listen, the last thing we need is a Sanhedrin, a self-proclaimed Sanhedrin council at the front door of the church telling people to take their hats off and leave their coffee in the lobby. I'm not advocating for legalism. Those rules were not put in place to appease God. Past generations imposed those rules on themselves. Those rules are not in the Bible. Past generations imposed those rules on themselves to trigger alarms in their soul that they were stepping into holy and sacred space. It triggered reverence in them and reminded them of the awe of God. I don't think God cares what you call this space or whether or not you got a hat on or whether or not there's a coffee in your hand. He is concerned about the condition of your heart. Listen, I pray and worship in the shower, okay? I pray and worship in the shower. If bringing coffee in here offends God, if having a hat on here offends God, then me praying and worshiping in the shower is the abomination of desecration. Listen, younger generation students that are here, those of you that are younger that didn't come up in generations that had the boundaries I'm talking about, you don't have to revive those same boundaries. But you better come up with something to help you recapture your sense of awe and wonder at the majesty and the presence of God. If not, you're going to live your whole life not ever knowing what it was like, what it truly meant to be in the manifest presence of the King. You've got to find a way to renew wonder and awe and reverence for God and his house? Do you revere him as holy? Is his presence sacred to you? Are you walking in the fear of the Lord? I can promise you, if we want the king to come and dwell here in this sanctuary as if it was his throne room, we cannot walk in here like we're at a concert hall or an event center or a ball game running back and forth to the concession stand, popping popcorn in our mouths like we're being entertained at the movies, being distracted by our phones the whole time. If we want God to fill this house, we're going to have to treat this house like it is the house of God. If we want the attention of the king... We have to approach him like he is the king of majesty that he is. I mentioned Charles Edward Jefferson in that little book. He said this in 1908. These words were written 114 years ago. And he was troubled by some of the same things I'm talking about today. He said this. We do not have as much reverence as we ought to have. We are not by nature or by training a reverent people. There are wide areas of American society from which the spirit of reverence has been banished. Men and women in many a circle are clever, interesting, brilliant, but they have no reach upward. Their conversation sparkles, but it is frivolous and often flippant. Their talk is witty, 
But the wit is often at the expense of high and sacred things. Possibly we are becoming less reverent because we are ashamed of being afraid of anybody or anything. Fear is one of the elements in reverence. And there is a popular impression that all fear is degrading. Fear is of two kinds. There is a godly fear and a fear which is ungodly. The latter has terror in it and throws a shadow and brings a chill. But there is a fear which all unspoiled spirits feel in the presence of the high and holy. If mortal man, stained and marred by sin, is not awed by the thought of a holy God, it is because he has lost the power of feeling. And he said that 114 years ago. He would be utterly shocked if he was alive today. Let me point you to one last verse before we step back into worship. In Isaiah 6, God gives Isaiah a vision of his throne room. Isaiah is literally brought into the manifest presence of God. And Isaiah is awestruck by what he saw. He's awestruck by what he experienced. It left him humbled. It left him spiritually empowered. But it also left him physically overcome by the presence of God. Now, you keep hearing me say manifest presence of God, manifest presence of God. And I want to differentiate between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. The omnipresence of God is God's present. He's present all the time, everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to outrun him. He is omnipresent. But then there's this understanding in Scripture of the manifest presence of God where what if for whatever reason in God's sovereignty, he chooses to show up and make his presence known in that environment more than somewhere else. He is felt, known, tangible. You see it in the Old Testament when the Bible says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the weight of God's glory, his manifest presence was so the priest could not even stand up under the weight of the glory of God. You know it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There have been moments in your own prayer times where you knew the God of the universe had just tangibly made himself felt and known in your car while you were worshiping in a revival or awakening or service that you were a part of. At some point in your life, you realize this isn't just the omnipresence. I am in the manifest presence of God. This is what happens in Isaiah 6. God ushers Isaiah into his manifest presence gives him a vision of what it looks like at the throne room. And here's the way it reads. I'm going to read it to you and I want the imagery to play out in your head. And then we're actually going to enter worship by singing a song pulled straight from the pages of Isaiah 6. Because I want us to have the same experience Isaiah had. I want us to be humbled. I want us to be exposed. And when you see God for who he is, you're just surrendered. You're like, here I am, God. Listen, listen to what it says, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on his throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Seraphim are the most powerful celestial beings, most powerful angels in heaven. They each had six wings. With two wings, they, were, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they, they were flying. They were circling the throne and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now here's Isaiah's response. I mean, he's, he's overwhelmed. Like He says, woe to me. 
I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I, I live among a people. Of, I am a sinful man and I live among sinful people. Who am I? My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You can't not feel that way. When you see God in His holiness, in His majesty, you cannot say, who am I to be invited into this? And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And in total surrender, he said, Here I am. God, send me. If I'm going to be privileged enough to to know you this way, then make me your currency and spend me however you please. I surrender. You can encounter the manifest presence of God and not be humbled, exposed, in all and totally surrendered. Look, I know modern church culture emphasizes God more as our friend than it does as a high, holy, majestic king. And it's true. The Bible says he is your friend that sticks closer. He's your father and he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But don't forget, your best friend is still the king. And friends of the king never lose sight that their friend is the king. They never lose the honor. They never abuse the privilege. They never treat the king as common or ordinary. Honor the king. Bow before the king. Fall on your face before the king. And if you will, you can turn wherever you may be into the throne room. Because if you will treat wherever you are like it is the throne room, He will come and He will take His throne. He will make your life, He will make your home, your church, a field, a classroom, an office, wherever you are, if you treat it like a throne room and you honor Him as a king, He will dwell there. He will come, take up residence there and make that His dwelling place. The posture of your heart, your attitude, your fear of the Lord, your worship, reverence, And all is what rolls out the red carpet for the presence of the king. 